There is a tendency to view the plagues as punishments, but ultimately they are also, indeed, perhaps first and foremost, intended to embody an attack on Egyptian theology. For the two, Egypt and its faith are bound up with one another. Welcome to Bible 365, Episode 18, Exodus at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In the Great Hall of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, visitors are greeted by an enormous statue of a pharaoh, which, seated, measures over ten feet tall, looming over the grandiose vestibule, dominating the vision of those who enter. It is an awe-inspiring sight. But which pharaoh is it? The answer, interestingly, is that it is several. It was originally created in around 900 BCE to depict the visage and glory of King Amenemhat II. Then, 600 years later, another pharaoh stepped in and decided that the statue would be more attractive if it looked like him. This man was Ramesses II. It is this Ramesses who is identified by many as the pharaoh of the Exodus first and foremost because one of the storage cities built by the slaves is named after him, Pithom and Ramses. Few focus on the most impressive evidence, which is, of course, actual video footage of the Exodus from the film The Ten Commandments, which makes Seti, the original pharaoh who enslaved Israel, and then his successor who faced Moses, was Ramesses II, who, in the film, looks strikingly akin to Yul Brenner. Be that as it may, it is Ramesses that we meet immediately upon entering the Met Museum. And whether or not we are looking at our pharaoh, the statue bears an inscription, a pagan proclamation, that tells us a great deal about the ultimate religious message of the Exodus itself. The final plague to be brought upon Egypt is divinely declared from the very beginning. Chapter 4, verse 22. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. But an elaborate explanation is never offered for why this plague is preceded by so many others. For further understanding, we turn to the inscription on the statue in the Great Hall. I cite the Met Museum website, which tells us as follows. In the center, two long text columns proclaim the same three of the five official names of Ramesses II two versions of his so-called Horus name, designating him as the incarnation of the sky and kingship god Horus, translate, Mighty Bull, Beloved of Maat, Goddess of Right Order and Justice, on the right, and Mighty Bull, Beloved of Re, the sun god, on the left. Below the Horus name in both columns, Ramesses II's throne name bestowed during the coronation designates him as King of Upper and Lower Egypt. Powerful is the Maat of Re, chosen of Re. Now, Re, or Ra, of course, is the sun god. But who is Maat, and what does it mean to say that the pharaoh is beloved of Maat? This is a word that many of us don't know. But it is absolutely essential to understanding the Exodus story because it is Maat that lies at the heart of Moses' challenge to Pharaoh. One educator source from the Met Museum explains that, quote, the goddess Maat personified the equilibrium in the world. She, therefore was especially associated with the king. On the strength of his divine nature, the king was a mediator between the gods and humankind, end quote. Maat, in other words, is the theological foundation of Egyptian 
tyranny. This point is elaborated upon in an excellent introduction to the Hertog Koran Land of Israel edition of Exodus, where we are told that, quote, Ma'at was a powerful social and political instrument through which the ancient Egyptian king governed. As an all-encompassing deified concept, Ma'at secured the king's position as the one and only sovereign of Egypt, and Ma'at enabled the upper classes to maintain their social status, and in some respect forced the various parties of Egyptian society to obey and accept their respective places within the society. End quote. The volume further explains that this concept of the insurance of order is linked to the agricultural society that was Egypt. The king, as the one responsible for maintaining Ma'at, needed to ensure the land's fertility and agricultural success. Moses, the volume explains, therefore undermines this claim status in the assault on agriculture that the plagues provide. So Ramesses, as the statute declared, is identified as the embodiment of Ma'at on earth, the intermediary of the gods who ensures the balance of all aspects of nature. And he is also known as the son of Re, the sun god. These are honors claimed by the pharaoh of Egypt. If Moses is going to challenge the theology at the heart of this tyranny, it is these identities that have to be utterly dismantled, bit by bit, till they are utterly disproven. The political aspects of the Exodus are bound up with the theology that the God of Israel seeks to establish. And all the plagues will embody not merely a punishment of the Egyptians, but a comprehensive undoing of their entire religious worldview. Let us see how this is so, beginning with the beginning of chapter 5. And afterward Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice, to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. And they said, The God of the Hebrews hath met with us. Let us go, we pray thee, three days' journey into the desert, and sacrifice unto the Lord our God. The first sentence is famous. Thus says the Lord, and they use God's name, God of Israel, let my people go. But the rest of the conversation with Pharaoh is unfortunately ignored. Moses speaks initially of the Lord of Israel, but then when Pharaoh ignores Moses, Moses changes his description of this divine being in whose name he speaks. And Moses says, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Why, after the reference by Moses to the God of Israel seems to make no impact on the Egyptian king, why does Moses suddenly switch to referring to the God of the Hebrews? There is today a great deal of misunderstanding about the term Hebrew. The assumption is that it is an ethnic or nationalistic term. One of my favorite stories, which I tell often, was recounted by my teacher, Rabbi Norman Lamb of Blessed Memory, who decades ago was once invited to address a seminar of the World Union of Jewish Students in Helsinki. One Jewish proponent of secularism declared there that he was not a Jew, but rather a member of the Hebrew nation. Writes Rabbi Lamb, quote, You are a French national, he said to no one in particular. You are an English national, and you, pointing to me, are an American national. I am a Hebrew national. Continued Rabbi Lamb, my response was more or less this. Mr. A, in the country I come from, Hebrew National is the name of a firm that manufactures kosher bologna. And while what you are proposing is bologna, I am certain it isn't kosher. End quote. In fact, the word Hebrew, or Ivri, is not ethnic, but has profound religious implications rather than national. Rabbi Yol ben Nun notes that in the ancient Near East, most people believed in territorial divinities, local gods who exercised tyrannical rule over a country's inhabitants, but were powerless beyond their borders. 
But Abraham was called Ivri, Hebrew, linked to the infinitive La'avor, to cross over, because he crossed from Mesopotamia into Canaan, believing that the God he met in Mesopotamia would be with him in an entirely other land when he crossed over and came there. Thus, to speak of the God of the Hebrews is to reference a God whose power is everywhere. Thus, Rabbi Nun explains, when Moses informs the Egyptian pharaoh that the God of Israel has demanded the release of his people, and Pharaoh parries by claiming that the deity of a non-Egyptian land is of no relevance to him, Moses proceeds to instruct him otherwise. The God of the Hebrews has sent us, he declares. That is, a God whose writ is not contained by borders. We are thus beginning to see how Egyptian tyranny is profoundly bound up with its theology. And others have understood this and saw in the tyrannies of modern time the Egypt of their own age. When the Ten Commandments was first shown in theaters at the height of the Cold War, Cecil B. DeMille himself appeared on screen before the film began and he addressed the audience. Ladies and gentlemen, he said, this may seem an unusual procedure speaking to you before the picture begins. The theme of this picture is whether men ought to be ruled by God's law or whether they are to be ruled by the whims of a dictator like Ramesses. Are men the property of the state or are they free souls under God? The same battle, he further said, continues throughout the world today. Moses, in this story, seeks to illustrate that we are free souls under God, not the property of Pharaoh. And to do this, it is Egyptian paganism that must be assaulted. And as the plagues proceed, Moses highlights how the God of Israel is truly a God of the Hebrews. He is not constrained and is omnipotent in Egypt as well. Let us further see how the assault on both Ma'at and Monarch is made manifest. Moses is sent to Pharaoh to deliver the decree that all water would turn into blood. Aaron throws down his staff. The staff, we all know, transforms, with his staff ultimately devouring those of the Egyptian enchanters in Pharaoh's court. But what creature does it turn into? Here is the English with one critical word left in the original Hebrew. Exodus 7 verse 12. And Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh, and they did as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a tanin. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did in like manner with their secret arts. For they cast down every man his rod, and they became taninim. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. Tanin and the plural taninim are often rendered serpent, serpents. And the original video footage from the Ten Commandments supports that translation, for that is what happens in the film. But alas, and it pains me to say this, ladies and gentlemen, Cecil B. DeMille here is, I think, incorrect. When, in Exodus chapter 4, Moses asks for a sign that he may show to Israel, their God allows his staff to transform into a nachash, which means snake. But as Rabbi Natan Slifkin has noted, the word tanin, in contrast, is not a snake, but rather a crocodile. Aaron's rod transforms into a crocodile and swallows the others. And the reference here, obvious to all in Pharaoh's court, is to Sobek, the Egyptian god of the Nile who takes on the form of a crocodile. Aaron is signaling that the Nile, source of Egyptian prosperity, is about to be undone. The waters will turn to blood. Thus begins the steady, unremitting attack on the Ma'at of Egypt where every aspect of the natural order and the animal gods that embody them 
turn on their master, on Pharaoh. This brings us to the next plague, which is Tsevardea, frogs. Here too, as noted in the Koran volume, the Hertog Exodus, this is no mere affliction. Frogs are, at every Passover Seder, the kids' all-time favorite plague. But the larger point often escapes them, which is, as the volume notes, and Rabbi Sachs has said similarly, that Hecate is the frog goddess of fertility. And this is a clear, ironic reference to the Egyptians being punished for having thrown Israelite babies into the Nile. Plague after plague, symbolically linked with the purported divinity or agricultural prosperity in Egypt, steadily strips away the theological claims of the tyrant Pharaoh himself, leading up to the penultimate plague, darkness. And as the Koran volume further informs us, the Egyptians believed that the head of the divine hierarchy, the sun god, would every evening sail underneath the earth and then rise. The terror psychologically, were that not to occur, would be immense, and the assault on Pharaoh's stature theologically would be dealt a death blow. Recall, ladies and gentlemen, the ascriptions to Ramesses on his statue in the Met's Great Hall. If, as we saw before, two of the titles of Ramesses II were the embodiment of cosmic order and the son of the sun god, can there be any greater undoing of these two titles through three days of complete darkness? If Pharaoh is beloved of Maat, how can order and nature have been replaced by chaos? If he is the son of the sun god, how come the sun does not rise? If he is the intermediary between humanity and the gods, why are the gods turning on humanity? Why is all this happening unless Pharaoh is not all he claims to be? There is a tendency to view the plagues as punishments, but ultimately they are also, indeed, perhaps first and foremost, intended to embody an attack on Egyptian theology. For the two, Egypt and its faith are bound up with one another. It is therefore no coincidence that in our Haggadah on Seder Eve, we too join the political and theological. We are obligated to intone on the one hand that Avadim Hayinu Lefaro B'Mitzrayim that we were slaves unto Pharaoh in Egypt and the Almighty redeemed us. But we also add in a separate stanza that that originally we too are descendants of Abraham's idolatrous ancestors. But God, the Holy One, blessed be He, has brought us nearer to Him and to monotheistic belief. Egyptian tyranny was intertwined with Egyptian idolatry, and Israelite freedom is fostered by Israelite faith. The plagues remind us that the political and the theological do go hand in hand, and Cecil B. DeMille reminds us in his introduction to the Ten Commandments that the religious and political question of whether we are free souls under God or subject to the will and whim of tyrants is a question that did not end with Egypt, but is rather one that remains of great relevance today. Several years ago, the synagogue on the Upper East Side, where I worked, suffered a fire, and the Metropolitan Museum of Art offered us the use of its auditorium for our high holiday services. When I arrived at the Met on the morning of Rosh Hashanah, I was understandably anxious about how it would feel to mark a sacred service in a museum. I entered and encountered this enormous statue of the Pharaoh, and all I could think of was Shelley's poem Ozymandias, a description of another image of Ramesses II. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings, 
Look upon my works, ye mighty, in despair. Nothing beside remains, round the decay of that colossal wreck boundless and bare. The lone and level sands stretch far away. And as I passed through the Egyptology wing on my way to the auditorium, I passed symbol after symbol of an empire that once bestrode the world like a colossus, but ultimately ended up upon the ash heap of history, while the people of Israel, a tiny nation that once stood against it, still lives. And then I read the Rosh Hashanah liturgy, which is all about God as creator of the world and providential director of history. It was one of the most meaningful holidays of my life. Since then, I have visited the Met many times, and as I pass the Ozymandian image dominating the hall, I feel gratitude for my memory of that moment, which will, for me, serve as a source of faith for many years to come. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.